would ask that you join me in Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 7. Our passage this morning will be the first six verses of Romans 7. Many have been saddened in recent years to see the institution of marriage either dismissed as, you know, just unnecessary for people who really love each other, or redefined as no longer one man, one woman, but, you know, any two people. You ask, why just two? Well, we don't know. That's, that's the next frontier. Um, but it's not as though that everything was perfect before the sexual revolution. Back when old-fashioned commitment was a real thing, you might have heard jokes about the old ball and chain. You know what a ball and chain is? I think we've got a picture here. There we go. Uh, That's a literal ball and chain used for hundreds of years as a crude way to keep prisoners from escaping. One end fixed around the ankle, of course. A convict could move a little and slowly, uh, but the heavy weight of the ball would keep him from running away. I'm ashamed to say that there was a time when that was a cliché, typically used by husbands to describe their wives, the old ball and chain. And you're like, oh, well, that was just a joke. Uh, any women think it's funny? No, no, it's an, it's an insult. Uh, that's, it, it does not honor marriage, nor the women as, as women as blessings from God for your good. But the problem is deeper than sexism. And it has infected both men and women. We think any constraint is an undesirable restriction of freedom. We th- but the real issue for, for every generation, pre- or post-sexual revolution, for men and women, the real need is to find a better kind of freedom within the right kind of constraints. It's true in marriage. It's also true in your relationship with God. So this is not just a marriage sermon. It's not. It's marriage will factor in quite a bit, but it's not for married people. It's for all people who have, who need a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. So last week we heard Paul talk about the Christian as free from sin, not free from sinning, but free from the power uh, and control. We don't have to be ruled by sin. We don't have to be uh, have. Our temptations or addictions uh, dominate our lives anymore. However, when we're free from sin in that sense, we are still obligated to obey God. He stands in absolute authority. So in that sense, Paul says that we are slaves of God. Better than that, we're going to see this week, we belong to him as a husband and wife belong to one another. The question is whether we will see God as a ball and chain or a blessing? Will we live under the right restraints and find a better freedom? Let's uh, go back to the passage I'm going to read because there's so much uh, tied. You'll, you'll hear several words that were used in our passage last week. It really flows out of what we saw last week. I'm going to start reading with Romans 6:12, and then read on through uh, 7 verse 6. So beginning with Romans 6:12. I wish I could go back to read the whole Romans 6, but you, you, you just have to bear with me. Uh, verse, verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members at, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, that is to holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's Word. Our theme for this morning, the only way to live for God is out of a life-giving relationship with God. Sounds simple, I hope, easy to understand, but it's something we have to take hold of today. The only way to live for God in obedience, devotion, discipleship, The only way to live for God is out of a life-giving relationship with God. So we're going to cover this in four parts. Maybe you've seen this already on the outline on the back of the worship folder. The first part is a condition, the situation, died to the law, and then followed by three intended results. And notice the Trinitarian shape there, to belong to Christ, to bear fruit for God, the Father, and to serve in the Spirit. So start with the first part, part one, died to the law. This is our situation as a believer. Having died with Christ, we are released from the law of Moses. So verses 1 through 3, Paul's using marriage as an analogy that we can easily understand, I think. Once married, you are bound by the law of marriage, so to speak. You can't live with someone who's not your spouse, or else you'll be guilty of breaking the law, that law of marriage. And that was true in Roman law. But throughout this letter, Paul, when Paul refers to the law, he's talking about 
the law that God gave to Israel through Moses. Um, you can see uh, that in verse 7, it's beyond our text this morning, where Paul refers to the tenth of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Here in the first few verses, it seems he has in mind the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So not only are in marriage are you bound, in one sense, to your spouse, bound by covenant, bound in covenant, you are bound by that law. Either you obey or you are condemned. But all that changes if there is a death. If one spouse dies, the marriage is over, the other is released from the law of marriage and is free, free to remarry. And you're like, okay, I, that, I can follow all that, pretty simple, but how does that lead to the conclusion at the beginning of verse 4 that a Christian has died to the law, and what does that even mean? Well, we have to go back to what he said a little bit earlier, something that we read in the first part of our reading this morning from uh, chapter 6. Just look at uh, verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Not under law, but under grace. That's the situation, the condition that we are in as a believer. All through this letter, Paul has been making the case for the good news in Christ of God's grace. And we've been singing about this morning, uh, teasing that out with the catechism question and, the, and uh, Logan's comments there. Uh, but, but through this letter, all, because all have sinned and deserve God's wrath, and, and we are unable to justify ourselves by obedience to the law, uh, our only hope then is when, for us, when, particularly when we come to final judgment, is having received a righteous standing as a gift of God's grace, won for us through the death of Christ. Ultimately then, our salvation is not about what we do for God, but what God has done for us. So if you, if you get lost in justification and sanctification and righteousness and all these big words, just ultimately our salvation is not about what we do for God, it's about what He has done for us in the gift of grace to us through Christ. You can understand that. You can believe it. You can hold on to it that today. It's what we, what we saw summarized so beautifully at the end of uh, chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. What we do... What we've earned, what we deserve by our behavior is death. But the free gift of God, that's grace, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not under law, we are under grace. Now, most of us in this room uh, here, uh, presumably are Christians, you've come here because you believe this. You come here because you, you've you affirm this. You, we're celebrating that uh, week in and week out together. We, we seek to be anchored, as we sang, to, to come and get anchored again in this reality of who Christ is for us. We love the message of grace, but you have to understand that that would not have been so easy to understand, easy to grasp for those uh, from Jewish heritage who were raised under the law of Moses. They knew about grace, yes. Grace is in the Old Testament. Don't, don't get me wrong. But the law, it, but pitting, seeming to pit law and grace against one another, to say that the law is something that, that we're no longer under? I mean, even if you weren't brought up in that culture, you, you can see how it would be hard for someone like that. But even if you and I, again, not brought up in that Jewish culture, under that covenant, I, I wonder if we might be more susceptible to saying, to, to reverting to being under the law rather than under grace more than we 
think we are? Seeing, seeing the law as the, the basis for our relationship with God rather than grace? So maybe take this uh, little, little pop quiz here um, to, to see if you, have, if you see yourself more under law than under grace. Uh, listen carefully. Three questions how you would answer these three. Number one, when something bad happens to you, do you wonder, is God punishing me for something I did wrong? If so, you're living under law and not under grace. Question two, when you pray and ask God for something to meet your needs, do you bargain with him? Like, oh God, I promise I'll do what you want from now on if just this one time you'll do this one thing that I need. That's not living under grace. That's living under law. How are you doing? Question three, last one. We could come up with more, but just just an example here. Do you measure your godliness by comparing yourself to others and whether you seem to come closer to what you think is the ideal Christian? That's law, not grace. Folks, we need to die to the law. Not that we stop obeying God, not that we stop doing what is right, not that we stop being, uh, do, following Jesus, but we need to stop trying to base our relationship with God on our performance. Die to that. How do you die to the law so that you're free? Free to obey out of love, free to serve with joy, rather than like huh, just worrying that you haven't done enough. Well, it's the same as what uh, Paul described at the beginning of chapter 6, what we looked at on Easter Sunday. We celebrated this on Easter and today in John's baptism. Those, for those who put their faith in Christ as expressed in baptism, identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection and saying, that's not just about him, this is about me now, about me dying with him, dying to an old way and rising to live a new life with him in his power. That's, that's how you die to the law. That's how you die to sin. And when you do that, you're united with Christ in such a way that his death means your death. Jesus, we said this before, Jesus died for your sin. Now you and I, we must die to our sin. This includes dying to lawlessness. That is the idea at the end of chapter 6 where like, so grace means I can sin more? Dying to lawlessness, dying to that. And also dying to legalism. We're seeing here that, that the idea that, well, if I just do enough of the right things, I'll be okay. We need to die to sin, die to the law. But once again, we, are, we see that we are not free then to simply be on our own. You're free. Go. Go do what you want. That's not what we're free for. Verse 4 chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We'll stop there for right now. This is part two. To belong to Christ. We were set free from the law in order to be bound in a better covenant, a better marriage, a better relationship. Maybe you notice that Paul's analogy seems, maybe seems a little sloppy because you're thinking, well, if the husband dies 
and then the wife is free to remarry. Sure, I'm following there. But then he says, we died so that we're free to remarry. Well, Paul, that doesn't work. Well, you're over-reading it. Uh, It's not meant to be a direct parallel at every point. All he is getting at is that uh, we have been released through a death so that we can belong to another. And actually, if you push the analogy at its every point, it's even more confusing because the law of Moses was much, much more than Israel's moral code, um, just a, a law book for, for Israel. It was given as the terms of their covenant relationship with God. It, this is, uh, in fact, the, the Lord said on Mount Sinai, just before giving the Ten Commandments, this is Exodus 19.5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, I know that sounds like, well, if you do this, then we can be friends. But you read the larger context, he says, I have, even the beginning of Exodus 20, like, I I am the Lord who redeemed you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So out of, out of the fact that I have redeemed you, this is how we're going to live together. Okay, these are the house rules. Um, so the point is not that you here is that you used to be bound in covenant with God through the law, but since you died, you can belong to somebody else. Well, the problem was that, uh, again, I'm thinking now in Romans 7, the problem was that under the law, they, we, could not overcome sin. And so, we are, in effect, slaves to sin. That's who we belonged to. We were supposed to belong to God, but in effect, through our behavior and under the law, we belong to sin. Now, having died with Christ, we're set free from sin to serve God. We are free from sin to belong to Jesus, to the one who died and was raised. That's who we belong to now. This is, this is even better than the image that we had in, the, in Romans 6 of being uh, relating to God as a slave to a, a new master, a better master. This is as a bride to a groom. We are his, we are his treasured possession, to use that phrase from Exodus 19.5. That, that was his plan and purpose all along for a covenant people. And we get to be that treasured possession. We get to belong, we, we belong to him. Now, I know, you know we live in a time of great sensitivity when it comes to language. No doubt someone will hear, so that you may belong to another in the context of marriage and think, oh, you know, this is the patriarchy, right? We belong, like so we're some kind of property back in the days when wives were counted as assets like heads of cattle, treasured possession, like am I just a trinket in his jewelry box? Now, now uh, just maybe two things to say about that. First, any time we're talking about uh, rights and, and justice, you understand that the, 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 the belief in individual rights that we enjoy as a country uh, come from biblical, a biblical foundation that says every human being matters because every human being, man, woman, whatever color of skin, is created in the image of God. There's dignity in every person. And yes, there are, there are certain rights that are natural to them, uh, because of their creator. But secondly, this is the other thing we have to say, and this is, you know, we, we've, we've grabbed hold onto that and we've run with it and we've, uh, we've left God out of the picture. But here's the other thing. Individual rights divorced from a concern for the social fabric, for family, for neighbors, and, and so on, only leads to disintegration. 
Literally, right? When, when, all, when all we are is a collection of individuals and we don't have any bonds, any ties, any covenants of marriage, of family, of community, of neighbor, a love for neighbor, then, folks, we just disintegrate, falls apart. So, no, you shouldn't be treated as property, not, not because of the color of your skin, not because you're a woman, uh, as a wife to a husband, and, and you're not treated as property when, when we say we belong to him. We're his treasured possession. Think about this. Don't you, don't you want to be the object of someone's love? Don't you want to have someone whose, whose opinion really matters to say over you, I want you. Be mine. You remember those little candy hearts? You still make them, but you know, not everybody likes to eat them. Be, be mine. Like, well, that's possessive. Like, but don't, don't you want somebody to say, be mine? Don't you want to... No, you shouldn't want to possess somebody else, but you should want to belong to someone. And when you offer that to someone else and receive it in return, that's a beautiful thing. The right kind of freedom in the right kind of constraints. Beautiful thing. To, say, to have God say over us, you are my treasure. Trace the whole story of the Bible. You'll see that it is all about God preparing a bride for his son, a redeemed humanity to enjoy a profound, mysterious union with him forever. The institution of marriage between a man and woman is just a picture of Christ and the church, Paul says in Ephesians 5. And that has led many people down through the centuries, many Christians, to compare Christ and the church to that first man and woman and the first marriage that we see at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Even, even some will compare Adam awaking to receive his bride that God gives him to the way that Christ, in one sense, woke up on that Easter Sunday morning to receive his. One uh, pastor from centuries ago described the end of the creation week this way. As this day was a day wherein God was refreshed and rejoiced in beholding his works, and a day of rejoicing to Adam in that he then received his wife, and a day of rejoicing to Eve being then first received into union with her companion, so the day of Christ's resurrection was a day of rejoicing to God the Father, to Christ, and also to the church, which was then begotten again to a living hope by his resurrection." We could imagine, we could imagine before we are in Christ, when we are under sin, we could imagine Satan gloating over those under the power of sin. Gloating. But imagine the better picture of your Savior rejoicing over you, delighting in you, ah, celebrating because you've been brought together. That's the picture. If that was the joy at his resurrection, what joy awaits us at his return and the wedding supper of the Lamb? But back to the topic at hand. When it, when it comes to your attitude towards sin, what difference does it make to have this kind of relationship with Jesus? Verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And now I'm going to stop there, even though, boy, it just wants to run right through to six, but I'm going to stop there to say part three, to bear fruit for God. One with the risen Christ, his life produces in us what God wants from us. One with the risen Christ, his life produces in us what God wants from us. Fruit was a word that Paul used uh, at the end of chapter 6 to describe the results or consequences of our behavior. So look back at 6.20 again. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So this in here in chapter 7 is clearly continuing that same line of thought. You get the fruit that leads to death. Uh, That's how you used to be before Christ. But there are a few little twists here in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Romans 6, 21, 22, it was the fruit you get. What's the fruit you get from those things of which you are now ashamed? Here in 7.4, it's about bearing fruit for God. So are we talking about two different fruits? Like some some fruit for me, some fruit for you. Uh, No, I don't think it's that. I think it's the same fruit, but it's a different way at looking at what we produce with our lives. It's not wrong. Uh, So when you think about the fruit that you get, as a, as a kind of dealing with the reality of, okay, what, what comes from all the stuff that you're doing? Um, it's not wrong to do the right thing with the expectation that you will benefit from it. Like you want the kind of fruit that is, is life, not the fruit of death from, from your behavior. That's the wisdom of Proverbs and so many other parts of Scripture. Uh, things like diligence and faithfulness and integrity and humility, these things lead to life. So that's the road you want to go. But if you only do what's right for the practical payoff, if you're only honest because you think, well, it'll, it'll keep, the, you know, keep the customers coming back, if you only do good work because you want the, uh, the approval of the Better Business Bureau, if you only do the right thing for the practical payoff, well, just, or, or think just any aspect of your life, if, if you don't do what's right because you want to honor God, then, you, then really... Your faith, your obedience, you just become a mercenary. You're just God's hired hand. You're just the slave in the wrong sense. I'm just doing, I'm doing this, not because I want to, not because I like it. You know, apparently this is what works. Pragmatic, but you're just a mercenary. You're not a faithful subject of the king. You're not a loving child to a caring father. When you do the right thing, here's a question to ask. When you do the right thing, what are you... What are you doing it for? Who are you doing it for? Another, perhaps a little twist here. Many commentators since the time of the New Testament have read verse 4 and wondered if the metaphor is marriage, of course, that's what the first three verses were about, and now you belong to another, presumably in a new kind of relationship, a different kind of marriage. So then is bearing fruit like be fruitful and multiply? Um, is this the spiritual reproduction of a growing church? Um, 
I'm not sure that Paul is thinking specifically of offspring when he's talking about fruit, um, even spiritual offspring, seeing more people come to faith. Maybe, I'm sure that's included. But I think he's still staying with the, the, the theme, the focus here of a righteous and holy life. That's the, the fruit of godly living. Um, even though not every husband and wife are able to have children in the broken world in which we live, fruitfulness is part of God's design for marriage. And, and here's, the, here's the picture that we have here. Life comes from this union. From this union with Christ, life comes. Fruitfulness is part of God's design for our relationship with Christ. And marriage is not the only metaphor for this. So children aren't, aren't the only metaphor either. But here, John 15, you know this passage, right? I'm the vine and you are the branches. Verse 4 of John 15 says, Abide in me, Christ says, and I in you. Abide, which is kind of getting a some sort of zen, like I'm just resting here. But just think of the image here of the vine and the branches. You've got to stay connected. You need to stay united. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not in union with Christ, if we're not united, if we're not in, uh, in walking in fellowship with him, then we're dead. We're not going to bear fruit. There's no, his life is not flowing through us. That's why it doesn't work to say, well, yeah, um, Jesus and me, you know, one of us is the vine, one of us is the branches. No, he's the vine. He's the, he's the, the, the root, the trunk. We're the branches. And it's, and, but he wants us to be connected to him. And it's not that Jesus bears fruit. He bears fruit through us. We bear fruit as we are connected to him, as his life goes through us. We're only able to bear fruit as we're united with Christ. And who is that for? We bear fruit for God. Romans 7 says, John 15, to go back to Jesus' words, John 15, 8 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We bear fruit for God, for the Father. If you are bound to the law, you hear the law as a list, a long list of what God wants from you. And you've got to muster it up all, all on your own. And you fail time and again. Of course you do. You don't have it in you. But one with the risen Christ, his life produces in us what God wants from us. What a relief to be not under the law, but under grace. Folks, take hold of that. Hold on to Jesus. Would you rather be bound to the law or united with Christ, bound to him in covenant? Would you rather slave away in sin or bear fruit for God? Verse 5 corresponds to the end of verse 4, which we've been looking at, but both referring to fruit. But it also, 5 also pairs with verse 6 in a different way. So reading verse 5 and then 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Last part. 
to serve in the Spirit. We now live for God, not by the law over us, but by His Spirit within us. Now, it's easy to see at the end of verse 6 that Paul is contrasting the new way of the Spirit with the old way of the written code, that is, the law. And what's translated new way here is the same word as used in chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's that new way. It's a new kind of living, a new characteristic uh, of life. This newness, this new way of life is characterized by serving God, by the way, but the way we do it is not by law, but by the Spirit. Now, and this is a lot of, a lot of thinking, we're, we're, we're doing this a lot in Romans where we really have to uh, drill down uh, with some specifics. When Paul's topic was justification, he said, not law, grace. Our righteous standing that we possess now, but is there for us at the final judgment, is a gift, not law, grace. When Paul's topic is sanctification, he, it's, his contrast is a little different. Not law, but Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit would be involved in our sanctification. Our righteous behavior is empowered by the Spirit. Our righteous standing, one for us by Christ on the cross. Our righteous behavior going forward is empowered and enlivened by the Spirit. Yes, it's built on new life in Christ, but it's at work in us by the Spirit. The law was not a help, Paul is saying here in verse 5, but a hindrance. Because of that sin that we inherited from Adam when we were living in the flesh, flesh not so specific to physical body as simply life before and apart from the Spirit, our sinful passions were aroused by the law at that time. What, what should have, uh, think of a horse here, um, riding a horse, what should have reined us in only spurred us on. That, that's what the law, the law should have reined us in. It spurred us on. Don't do that. I really want to do that. We're going to see that only much more uh, in the rest of this chapter, um, so I won't spend too much time there. But this is, you understand, this is a radical thing for a a Jew to say, stunning to Jewish readers, uh, that the law is a problem. He's going to explain and defend what he means. Like, no, I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm not saying the law is sin. I'm not saying it causes sin. I'm just, he'll clarify that the rest of the chapter, next sermon. uh, Because, chapter 8, next few sermons after that, we'll we'll talk much more about the Spirit, the the life of the Spirit in us, in the life of the believer. So I'm just keeping this brief for now. We're going to close quickly and move to communion. But let's talk about this from two perspectives. First, as a new era in the history of redemption, the coming of the Spirit, second, as it pertains to you personally today. If you read the Old Testament, aka the Old Covenant, you're reading the history of Israel, and it is not a pretty story. God chose them for blessing, redeemed them from slavery, gave them the parameters for a relationship with Him, the law, but they were unfaithful time and again. For people, that, I mean, you could, and they were often called an adulterous people. For people to have a relationship with God, it would take something more than the law. So let me read to you Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will, shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel speaks of the same thing and is more explicit about the spirit, the spirit that he gives to us, turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. So you might think, well, what Paul, is Paul describing the same thing that that Jeremiah is? Because Paul says, not law, spirit. Jeremiah seems to be saying, yes, one day God will put the law in your hearts. This new reality that both Jeremiah and Paul are describing is where the moral demands of a holy God do not stand outside of us carved in tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments. Standing outside of us, arousing sinful desires, standing over us, condemning us, one day the righteous demands of a holy God will be present within us as He gives us the heart to know and love to serve and obey because we want to. That's the great promise that comes after generations, after centuries of failure on the part of the people that had the most religious knowledge of anyone on the planet. The most, they had all the advantages. They had the privileges of, of holding God's word in their hand, but without an inner work, it was not enough. That's why the key piece, this key piece of biblical history of God's providence has to get personal for you and me you got to serve somebody. You're either serving God or you're serving sin. You're either following a moral code, whether traditional American values or the strictest tenets of Islam or Buddhism, even the Bible. If you're just using it as a rule book, not enough. You need a new way to serve. You need the, present, the personal presence and power of God in you, His Spirit. Don't you want to be free from the law? Don't you want to be free from the pressures of performance, of of bargaining with God? Uh, Like if I just do the right things or if I just make the right offer that he'll he'll respond to me? Do do you want to feel like a slave working as your work as a drudgery when you're meant to live as an obedient child of a loving father, when you're meant to live as a beautiful bride of the great bridegroom serving in the new way of the Spirit? Folks, the only way to live for God is out of a life-giving relationship with God. It comes from Him. Father, Son, Spirit. Let's pray. You are the life. You are the hope. Do your work in us as we trust in you, as Even more specifically, we trust in the work that you have done through your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And now by your Spirit, applying this work to our hearts. Would you do this even now? And we 
who believe will celebrate this together as we remember Jesus and the bread and the cup. We pray this in his name. Amen.